All right. So, church, we have officially entered a new part of the book. So prior to this, we've witnessed Israel going through these cycles of oppression and then rescue at the hand of a judge. But here, that cycle fades into the background now. Here, the focus is no longer external oppression, but Israel's own internal cancer. In the middle part of this book, the six judges cycles, the bulk of the book, we've seen how God has rescued Israel. But now, here at the end of the book, we're given two portraits of the spiritual condition from which God is rescuing them. And the two conclusions here, we get something of a double conclusion. I like to think of it like thing one and thing two from the cat in the hat. You guys remember thing one and thing two? They come in and they make an absolute mess of things. And that's sort of what these two conclusions are doing as well. They stand side by side, creating a picture of Israel's utter mess. The first conclusion, today's account, deals with Israel's horrendous religious condition, their worship and their faithfulness to God. The second account, next week's, showcases Israel's horrendous civil condition, their peace and order as a society and people. And so these two accounts occur as conclusions, not because they are chronologically last in terms of the events of the book, but they get placed here at the end in order to highlight this downward spiral of the book to show how bad things have really gotten during this period. And so if you remember, things started off pretty mild, actually, at the beginning of the book. Israel was disobedient, sure, and she failed to eradicate the Canaanites from the land, just as God had instructed her to. But it didn't really feel like a super big deal at the time, right? As we've, I mean, it was, it was easy even to rationalize that sin. And even as we saw the initial judges, they were pretty decent at first. But as we've witnessed across the book, things have gotten progressively worse and worse. And the judges even have gotten progressively worse. And so now at the end of the book, our author provides us two portraits meant to showcase how bad things really have gotten. Israel has hit rock bottom. And this final section of the book, 17, chapter 17 to 21, contains some of the darkest passages in all of the Bible. So it's a perfect passage for, for Father's Day, right? Um, now, Scripture here is not condoning what happens in these passages, just to be super clear. It's descriptive. It's just describing what happened. It's not prescriptive, saying this is what ought to happen. It's actually meant to be disturbing. It's meant to bother us in a good way. I don't know about you, but sometimes I, I actually like, Anne and I are very different in this respect. I like to watch uh, films that showcase evil, but showcase evil in a way that actually puts it in a bad light. Um, so I, I really enjoy watching uh, like documentaries or, or historical films about the civil rights era, for example, that showcase segregation and showcase uh, slavery and things about, uh, yeah, about our, his, our, our country's history in that respect. Not because, uh, not because it's presented in some, some sort of a gratuitous way, 
but it's actually causing you to be bothered in a good way. Like we ought to be bothered by things that are evil. And I think it's actually good for us to be presented and to see things that are evil in such a way that we see the evilness of the evil and our hearts are then tuned to hate evil. And as believers, God not only wants us then to develop a love for what is good and beautiful, but he also wants us to abhor and disgust, have a disgust for what is evil. So one of the aims of a passage like this is that we would actually then learn to hate evil, the evil displayed here, the evil of the human heart that's showcased. The theme of this passage is Israel's idolatry or her illegitimate worship. And this is the same idolatry that has led to her oppression throughout the book. We'll see this theme of idolatry get developed scene by scene as we work through the story. But I want you to notice at the very end of the passage, we get a mention of the tabernacle in chapter 18, verse 31. Look at verse 31 there, where it mentions, or sorry, verse... um, should have mentioned, I got my reference correct. Uh, it mentions the tabernacle, the house of God. Oh yeah, it is 31. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God, you notice there it says, was at Shiloh. The house of God being a reference to the tabernacle, the tent dwelling of God. Now, this mention of a house of God is meant to stand in contrast then to Micah's shrine in 17.5. In 17.5, it says that the man Micah had a shrine. And that word that's translated shrine in the ESV is literally in Hebrew, house of gods. Same word for house. So you get the house of God mentioned at the end, which contrasts here at the beginning with the house of gods that Micah set up. And so these two houses are bookends to the whole passage and they create then a contrast between the idolatry and the place of true worship. Do you see? So this theme of idolatry encapsulates the passage. The author gives us an explanation then at two key points in the passage. One that Holly already read for us. The other at chapter 18 verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel. Chapter 17, verse 6, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The reason is that there was no king in Israel. Those are meant to be interpreted together. And so this passage is teaching us that without God as their king, Israel does right in their own sight, resulting in what we might call religious anarchy. Anarchy is the political system where there is no government. Everyone's just doing whatever, right? There's no rule. And that anarchy politically led to anarchy religiously. Without God as their king, Israel does right in her own sight, resulting in religious anarchy or, in other words, idolatry. And so we're going to walk through the story scene by scene, and then we'll draw some conclusions at the end. So begin with me in chapter 17, verse 1. There was a man of the hill hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke that curse in my ears, behold, that silver is with me, I I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by Yahweh. 
And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate a portion of this silver to Yahweh from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. And now, therefore, I will restore it to you. And so when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of that silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, a house of gods. And he made an ephod and a household and household gods. And he ordained one of his sons even who became his priest. In those days... There was no king in Israel. That's how this happened. You see, everyone was doing right in their own eyes. And so we're introduced to this man named Micah who steals from his own mother. And then when he returns the silver, his mother blesses the very one she cursed as if somehow he's doing her some great service. The money then gets used. They use the money to build a shrine. And Micah actually appoints one of his own sons to be a priest in it. And this is all very clear, a violation of the covenant that God made with Israel. Making idols, first of all, but also appointing an illegitimate priest who wasn't from the lineage of the priesthood. But you notice Micah's mother actually thinks that she's doing this all for Yahweh. In verse 3, she says, I dedicate the silver to the Lord, to Yahweh, to make a carved image for Yahweh. Similar to how the Egyptian or the Israelites, when they come out of Egypt, they make a golden calf to God, they say. The irony of making an idol for Yahweh, right? This family, family probably actually thinks of themselves as very orthodox. They don't worship the pagan gods like Dagon or Baal. No, they worship Yahweh. And they're actually very religious. They generously give quite a bit of their money to Yahweh. They're so religious, they've even built a shrine in their own house. In other words, what's at play here isn't idolatry in the raw, like worshiping other gods explicitly. No, they're actually worshiping the true God just in the wrong way, by mixing in idolatrous elements. And we too can do the same thing. We learn something of idolatry throughout this passage. Uh, uh, When we blend our religion with other things, our worship actually becomes idolatrous. You see, we can worship the God, the true God, in a way that's actually idolatrous. It's not just who we worship that matters, but how we worship him. Do we live for God according to the way that he has instructed us to? Or do we blend in things that don't belong? As I think of some of the most prevalent examples that we're probably in danger of today in our American society, on the one hand, it's blending in non-biblical sexual ethics, kind of incorporating the world's current sexual ethics within our Christianity and sort of promoting that as somehow a Christian view of sexuality. Or on the other hand, maybe on the other end of the spectrum, it's blending our Christian faith with our national uh, identity. Or in either case, on either side of the political spectrum, it's blending our Christian faith with our political platform or politics and somehow equating those ideas with Christian ideas. Or anytime someone says, you know, I could never believe in a God who blank, Whenever you say that, I couldn't believe in a God who blank, we're creating a God shaped by our own sensibilities. 
That's an idol, in other words, a creation of our, of our own invention. Genesis, in Genesis, God says, let us make man in our own image. The sin of idolatry flips that and says instead, let us make a God in our own image. And this passage shows then that religion or spirituality or faith are not just positive things in and of themselves like our culture often likes to think. Like our culture just says like, oh, this person has faith and, and, and faith this and faith that as if it's just this inherently good thing regardless of what that faith is actually in. And you'll notice that, that Micah and his mother are both quite sincere here. They're sincere. They think they're doing the right thing. Uh, Micah is actually called, it, it, the passage actually calls him the man Micah, the man Micah. And then in verse 6, chapter 7, verse 6, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and it's literally every man, same word in Hebrew, did what was right in his own eyes. So Micah is sort of the example of every man doing right in his own eyes. He's doing right in his own eyes, though. He thinks he's doing what's right. Sincerity does not make our religion true, in other words. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. Going on in verse 7. Now there was a man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. Now the Levites were those who were involved in serving at the tabernacle. Okay, And so he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be a father and a priest to me. And I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest. And he was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that Yahweh will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest. And so again, the Levites were a tribe assigned to serve in the tabernacle. So Micah probably thinks to himself that having a Levite as a priest, that's an upgrade. His shrine is now going to have a greater sense of legitimacy and prestige. And the Levite of all people should have known better. But what does he do? He gives in when tempted with money and convenience. Verse 11, the Levite, notice this, the Levite was content to dwell with the man. That sounds great. And so too for us, compromise with, with, with idolatry is normally something that's attractive. It normally is making an appeal to us by offering some sort of convenience, some, something that would give us some sense of contentment, money. We become content with our idols. We're content to dwell with them. Micah here is treating God like a rabbit's foot, like, like some sort of uh, superstitious thing. He seeks to manipulate God to get what he wants. He says in verse, thing, verse 13 that now I know that Yahweh's going to prosper me. I have a Levite, so I can, I can get God to prosper me now. And we can do the same sort of thing where we seek to use God 
to get what we want, where we try to manipulate him as if, as if God is someone that we can barter with. You see, false religion seeks access to God in order to get God to serve us, whereas true religion is concerned with how we can serve God, not with how he can serve us. We continue in, verse, or in chapter 18, verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan, the Danites, they were seeking for themselves an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to Dan. And so the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Ashtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and they lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite, and they turned aside to him and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place, and what is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Oh, inquire of God for us, uh, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of Yahweh. Then the five men, these Danites, they departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anybody. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Ashul, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise! And let us go against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into our hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. And so as we've seen here, the tribe of Dan is looking for land. Now, this is actually because of their disobedience, though, to take the land that God had given them. And so it's ironic in verse 9 when they say, hey, don't be slow to go in and possess the land, because that's exactly what they've done. They've been slow to possess the land. They're not possessing the land God gave them. And the city of Laish, where they are setting their crosshairs now, it's not a part of the inheritance that was allotted to Dan. It's actually outside of the original land that God had given to his people. And so the narrator wants to draw our sympathies to Laish. They're described as peaceful and defenseless and unsuspecting people, sort of minding their own business. And so if anything, this is like an anti-conquest narrative. God has already told Dan where they are to dwell, the land they're supposed to conquer. And so even as they disobey God, they stop to have this illegitimate priest ask if God will cause them to be successful, as if they actually care what God thinks. They don't want to obey God. They're not obeying God. But they do want God's favor. How very much like us sometimes. We don't want to obey God, but we would like the benefits. And so ironically, the Danites seek God's favor through an idolatrous 
priest. Like that's going to be something that God finds favorable. It's actually an abomination to God. But despite their disobedience, they're nonetheless quite confident that, that they do have God's blessing. They say in verse 10, God has given it into our hands. Continue in verse 11 with me. And so 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Ashtail. And they went up and they encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahanah-Dan to this day. And behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim, and they came to the house of Micah. Then the five men from Dan, who had gone out originally to scout out the country of Laish, they said to their brothers, their fellow Danites, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Hmm. Now, therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah, and they asked him about his welfare. Now, the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. Not really going to mess with them, right? And when these went out into Micah's house and they took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man, or to be priest to an entire tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and, carved, and the carved image, and he went along with the people. And so Micah had built this shrine. Remember why? In order to try to secure prosper, prosperity for himself. And ironically, it's resulted in quite the opposite, the loss of his property and wealth. And so the tribe of Dan plunders Micah's shrine. And they offer the Levite, though, a promotion. Come with us. You, can be a, you could either be a priest to a family. Okay, how about being a priest to an entire tribe? And the Levite takes the deal. Again, we see in verse 20, we get a little uh, picture on the, on the internal level of what was going on in the Levite's heart. It says the priest's heart was glad. First he was content, now he's glad. He's an opportunist. We see this as well. Religious opportunism is, is sort of changing our direction, what we believe, what we're willing to do religiously, based on whatever we think sort of serves our advantage, wherever the wind seems to be blowing at one moment. That's what the Levite is doing here, the nature of his idolatry. It's flexible. It'll go with, what, with whatever seems to be to his advantage. And so we continue in verse 21. So they turned and they departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. This is the Danites, that is. And so when they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, they're going away now, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were all called out. Micah is gathering a group with him, and they chased down the Danites, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you? 
that you have come with such a company? Why are you chasing me with this group of people? And he said, you take my gods that I have made and the priest and you go away and what have I left? How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, oh, don't let your voice be heard among us lest there be some angry fellows who might fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. And the people of Dan went away. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and he went back to his home. Micah chases them down and he's absolutely upset. He's livid. He's so upset that his idols have been stolen that he's actually willing to fight about it. He brings in a gang with him. The irony that the stealer is upset now that he's on the receiving end, that someone is stealing from him. But isn't this exactly how we respond to when someone threatens our idols or someone attacks our idols? That we attack back. We want to defend our idols. As the New City Catechism says, it defines idolatry this way. It says idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness or our significance and security. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than God for our hope and happiness, security, and significance. And so when someone attacks one of our idols, we feel like our very hope and security are being threatened. We've placed our hope and happiness in something. We've invested our sense of significance and security in something. And so when someone or something comes along and threatens that, we're going to lash out. Notice Micah's response when his idols are stolen. In verse 24, he says, What have I left? You take my idols from me, what have I left? And this is our same response when our idols get stolen from us. Like, that was my everything, and you took it away. You see, each one of us worships something. The question isn't if we worship, but what we worship. Each one of us is looking to something for our ultimate meaning, purpose, and satisfaction. And so what is the one thing about which, if it were to be taken away from you, you would say, and what have I left? I have nothing now. And there is your idol. Ironically, Micah admits the silliness of his own idolatry. In verse 24, he says that these are the gods that he made. God can't be made. That's a contradiction in terms. But this is the nature of idolatry, right? It's, it's to worship our own invention, things that we make into gods. Micah even says that you took away my gods. Some powerful gods they were if mere humans can carry them off. You see, idolatry, it never possesses the power to protect and to supply what we look for it to do. And so the Danites issue this veil threat. They say, well, we wouldn't want anyone to get hurt now, would we? And so Micah realizes he's outnumbered and they go their separate ways. And so we reach, to the, we reach the final scene of the story, verse 27 and following. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. 
It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and they lived in it. And they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God, the tabernacle, was at Shiloh. The tribe of Dan takes the city of Laish, and the idolatry only continues. They set up Micah's shrine in their new town. And we get the identity now of the Levite. The, the Levite has been unnamed this, up to this entire point. He's just the Levite, but now his identity is disclosed to us. Disclosed to us. He's actually Jonathan, the grandson of Moses. Of Moses. See how quickly idolatry takes hold? Just two generations in, and no less than Moses' grandson. You see, faithfulness is not genetic. There's no guarantee that faithfulness will be passed on from one generation to the next, even with someone as great of a leader like Moses. As D.A. Carson says, one generation knows the gospel, the next generation assumes the gospel, the third generation loses the gospel. And again, all of this stands in contrast with the genuine place of worship, the house of God, the tabernacle. The legitimate, illegitimate worship, sorry, the illegitimate worship of this passage, as, you've, as we've seen, it gets progressively worse and worse as the story goes on. First, it just involved Micah and his family. It was contained to just that family. But soon thereafter, Micah then involves a Levite into his idolatrous counter-worship. And finally, by the, end of, by the end of the narrative, an entire tribe ends up adopting Micah's idolatrous construction. One man's sin, Micah, ends up infecting an entire tribe of Israel. And this idolatrous shrine in the city of Dan seems to establish, get this, it seems to establish the precedent for when King Jeroboam, later in Israel's history, eventually sets up one of his golden calves in this very location, as he sets up false worship centers to compete with the temple in Jerusalem. Do you remember when the kingdom of Israel splits? And King Jeroboam of the north, the ten northern tribes, sets up golden calves, one in the furthest north spot, that was Dan, and one in the south to compete, to have their own competing worship system, to, to be an alternative to the temple in Jerusalem in the south. This is the very same location. It's likely that this is setting the precedent for Jeroboam's idolatry there. And so if that's true, Micah's idolatry ends up, in infect, in, ends up actually infecting the entire ten northern tribes of Israel. In many ways, this passage is the story of a corrupt man who makes a corrupt idol that ends up corrupting all those with whom it comes in contact. You see, idolatry never just stays contained. Our sin is never just us, but it spreads and it infects the community around us. 
Cultures and societies have a tendency to paint their origins and their histories in extremely positive lights, almost mythical terms at times, right? We, we talk this way about the founding of America even in our own country. Why do we do this? Well, it makes us feel that we are a part of something really great. It fosters national pride and civic loyalty. Okay, this is one of the reasons that right now there's so much debate around history curriculums in our schools, right? Between those who want to make sure we adequately attend to the evils of our nation's past, with things like racism and slavery, and, and those who are concerned about the effect of that sort of teaching. Uh, they, want, they want to make sure, they have a concern for wanting to make sure the positive aspects of America are also displayed. But the reason that's so highly debated is because we care about how we teach our past. And now the period of the judges is the early days of that nation. It's, it's their founding, it's their beginnings. But whereas most cultures and society have an interest in depicting their beginnings in very grand, almost mythical terms, the book of Judges does not pull any punches about how bad things were at this time. Rather than depicting the early days as the glory days, the book of Judges depicts these days as the not-so-good old days. And this is the same sort of thing that we see all throughout the scriptures, right? That the scriptures, it doesn't hide the sins of some of its main characters. Abraham gives his wife, over to Sarah, or gives his wife Sarah over to Pharaoh. David commits adultery and uh, he even kills a man, as does Moses, he kills a man. Peter constantly is sticking his foot in his mouth throughout Jesus' ministry and he eventually even denies Christ. Why does scripture do this? Because scripture doesn't have an interest in holding up our actions as somehow the heroic ones. It's not interested in presenting a heroic past of the saints. The Bible's central message has to do with the fact that we are actually utterly broken and in need of saving. Human sin is not, therefore, some distraction from the storyline of Scripture, sort of oddly included in the Bible here and there. Rather, it's at the very heart of Scripture's message, that humanity is evil and needs rescue from outside of itself. And so as most cultures develop an origin story showing how great they were at the beginning, God gives Israel an account of how terrible they were at the beginning. And so what is an aim of a passage like this then, which has as its goal then to highlight this evil, to showcase human sin and weakness and failing? The goal of a passage like this is to expose our need for a righteous king who leads us in doing what is right, not in our own sight, but in God's sight, thereby rescuing us from idolatry. As we said at the beginning, this passage teaches us this, that without God as our king, we do right in our own sight. and We go our own way into religious anarchy, into idolatry. Now, initially, the king that was needed was met in David, right? This, this book, Judges, is anticipating David, that, that king that Israel needed. But even David did not prove to be sufficient. David committed very serious sins himself. And his lineage eventually resulted in the division of the kingdom and an exile of both the northern and the southern kingdoms. And so it's not just any king that's needed. It's a particular sort of king that we need. And so eventually the book of Judges is longing for a king 
that is only met in King Jesus. Jesus is the king who rescues us from our religious anarchy. Through Jesus' death, he pays the punishment for our anarchy, for our treason, and he therefore gives us the lawful right to be made citizens of God's kingdom under God's rule. As God's reigning king, Jesus supplies the rule and the leadership that we so desperately need, as showcased here in this passage. Jesus then, as the king, empowers us to follow his rule through the empowering spirit he gives us. And then at his second coming, Jesus will totally rescue us from all remaining traces of sin by ushering us into a perfect experience of his blessed rule and reign in his restored kingdom. And so the point of a passage like this is that we would recognize our need to be led by God's righteous King Jesus, the one who rescues us from and leads us away from our own idolatry. Without Christ as our king, we will do right in our own sight. Inevitably doing right in our own sight, which is wrong in God's sight, we will inevitably fall into religious anarchy and idolatry. We need God's righteous king, Jesus, to rescue us and lead us out of idolatry. And this is a message that our world needs today, is it not? that our culture today prizes being the masters of our own identity. We want to be the master of our destiny. We want to rule ourselves. We want to define ourselves even. And a passage like this highlights our need to be defined by God, to be ruled by God, for God to provide order and therefore for him to be able to provide goodness in our life, the way he created us to be rather than doing things our own way as well as our culture is constantly in its pursuit to do its own thing and to rule, our, to rule our lives ourselves, our culture is constantly going after alternative gods, things that we make into gods, visions of the good, objects of our hope and happiness, safety and security that we invent, things that ultimately will never satisfy. Over and over, the Bible shows us that idols are futile to actually give us what we look for them to do. Think of the book of Ecclesiastes, where the word vanity is actually the same word as idol idol in the scriptures. It never satisfies. The idols can simply get carried away. They can't bring you prosperity, but Christ can. And this is the message we get to carry then to the world around us. C.S. Lewis said, that if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If I have a desire for something that this world cannot satisfy, as Ecclesiastes says, we have eternity built into our hearts. And if I try to make, if I try to make things into a God, it only ends up being vanity in the end. It cannot, it cannot provide what I look to it for. But if I have that desire that's greater than anything in this world, it means I must be created with a desire that meets something else, something outside this world. And I think this is not just a message for the world around us, believer. It's also the same message for us, that we can be tempted to think that somehow we're immune to this sort of idolatry that we see displayed here. Maybe we, we, start to, we start to trick ourselves into thinking that we're not as in a dire situation religiously as we actually are. We start to think that maybe I'm not actually that compromised with idolatry. 
Maybe we forget the state that we are in apart from God's grace. We forget our default mode. Our default setting is religious anarchy. Or maybe we underestimate how much we are still infected with religious anarchy, even as believers. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And so above all as a church, we need to be governed by Christ. And Christ governs us by his word. Trust his word, believer. Don't trust your own innovations, your own judgments, your own ingenuity, not pragmatism, not societal trends. We worship the true Christ, not a figment of our own imagination. We are willingly, we willingly submit to him and his word as that which is good for us. And so as we move to the Lord's Supper, Christ bought our religious loyalty. The, 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 the true worship, the religious loyalty that is longed for in this passage is that which Christ has bought in his death and resurrection. He won it through his death and resurrection, securing our faith and our obedience to him. Admittedly, we're not there yet, though. But we strive in this life to live out what Jesus has already won for us. And we look forward in hope to the day when Jesus returns and he brings that work to full completion for us. This promise that we have of Jesus winning our religious loyalty, of winning our faith and our obedience, our true worship, this promise is displayed in Jesus' supper that he shares with us this morning and every Sunday. The elements he gives us, they are emblems, they are pictures of his saving death that we share in by trusting Jesus. And not only so, but we remember, uh, not only do we remember Jesus' saving death for us, but Jesus also told us that we are to do so, how long? Until he comes. And so we have an eye to that day when these promises will no longer be not yet, but they will entirely be already. It will no longer be in the tension of waiting till then. They will be fully here.